singing those big songs of our big God certainly is the hope that we need. And it's rooted in Paul's arguments in our chapters that focus on the resurrection. In these two chapters of the book of Acts, we have more legal wranglings, more accusations, and more of Paul's words of defense. Paul's defense now is dragged on for more than two years. If you remember at the very end of last week's reading, we heard that Felix had left Paul in prison for two whole years, kind of just choosing not to make a decision, and then he gets moved on and Festus takes over, and he now is addressing the case, as we saw in chapter 25. Two years of really a defense against frivolous charges. In chapter 22, Paul stands before an angry crowd. Chapter 23, he's making a defense before the Sanhedrin, chapter 24, before Felix, chapter 25, before Festus. And then in chapters 26, Festus kind of asks a fellow ruler, Herod, to take a look at this case. Herod, although he's called the king, is a king appointed by Rome over Jews. So, He's in a district kind of a little to the east of where Festus rules. So they're, they're kind of equals. But because Herod Agrippa, the second here, uh, is familiar with the Jewish ways, Festus wants his input on this case. So that's why we have two stories of two leaders both kind of collaborating to accomplish some kind of decision regarding Paul. Bernice is... Herod Agrippa's sister, Uh, they are son and daughter of Herod, who killed James back in Acts chapter 12. Herod Herod Agrippa, now the second, and Bernice and Festus and all the dignitaries have listened to Paul's defense. It's not a very wordy defense, although Paul does include his own story, his testimony of conversion. But in reading these chapters, after hearing Paul speak in 22 to the crowd, 23 to the Sanhedrin, 24 to Felix, and now 25 and 26, it begs the question, what do we add to our understanding of either Paul's defense or Paul's heart for the gospel as we hear yet another account and defense That Paul makes. And I think we can be spurred on to a little closer study this morning by the words of Festus as he lays Paul's case before Agrippa. There at the end or the middle of chapter 25, Festus is bringing Herod Agrippa up to speed. So he's summarizing what has happened. And he says in verse 18 that the accuser stood up but they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. 
Interesting language, of course, it's coming from someone who doesn't really understand this. We wouldn't just say Paul asserted that Jesus was alive. But it's interesting that this ruler, who inherited this case from his predecessor, is summarizing the case, and what he knows to say of what Paul is all about is that he follows a guy who was dead and Paul asserts to be alive. That's telling. That's telling of Paul's vocabulary and his heartbeat that came out of him, that what he was excited about was the fact that Jesus was alive. So our theme this morning is to see how that resurrection anchors the gospel. We could say Paul's all about the gospel, but this leader in our chapters this morning didn't talk about justification by faith, didn't talk about a substitutionary atonement by a sacrificial lamb. He talked about this one who was dead and now they say is alive. It was that resurrection that Paul would argue confirms all the other truth about redemption's plan. So we need to understand this morning from these chapters how it's the resurrection that should excite us. It's the resurrection that should carry us through with hope. It's the resurrection that is the source of our joy and good news that we are sharing with others. The resurrection dots the landscape of the book of Acts. From beginning to end, it's resurrection. Now, our theme isn't resurrection. As we've studied the book, our theme is the advance of the kingdom. But that kingdom is advancing fueled by this hope that the one we follow is alive. Begins in Acts chapter 1, when the apostles are searching for a replacement for Judas. In Acts chapter 1, verse 22 says they discussed they said they were searching for the replacement. They said they, we need one of these men who must become with us a witness to the resurrection. It kind of sets the trajectory for the whole book. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you will be witnesses. And if we were to ask of what, it was answered by the apostles just a paragraph later. We need one of these men to join us as, as witnesses of the resurrection. In Acts chapter 4, the religious leaders were greatly annoyed, the text says, because the disciples were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection. Again, we know that that was probably a full message of Jesus' whole righteous life, his atoning death, and his resurrection. But the focal point, that this anchoring, weighty validation of the gospel was, we proclaim the resurrection. Later in Acts 4, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Later, Acts at, in Acts 17, Paul at Mars Hill, the Areopagus, is debating with the Stoics and the Epicureans, the text says, these philosophers of the day. And they said, Paul must be this babbler because he was talking about the resurrection of Jesus. In Acts 17, 
Later they say, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this matter. It was the resurrection that Paul used as the tip of the spear, so to speak. It was the great hope of the Christian faith. The way, as it was known, was following this one who had died, but indeed had risen from the dead. Before Felix, Paul says, describing his hope in God, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And now from Acts 25 and 26, let's see how this resurrection anchors the gospel. We begin with the logical implication of a resurrection. In other words, if we're going to talk about a resurrection, it implies there must have been a death. So number one, we recognize that Jesus died. In in unfolding an anchor that the resurrection is to the gospel, it helps us understand first that Jesus died before he could be resurrected. And Paul makes that case, or even the Roman rulers do in chapters 25 and 26. First in chapter 25, verse 19, in that summary given to Agrippa, a certain Jesus who was dead and whom Paul asserted to be alive. Even the Roman rulers knew that Jesus had died. Now, there are some liberal skeptics that will approach the scriptures and say, you know what, Jesus didn't really die. He kind of slipped into a coma on the cross and they didn't know he was alive and they buried him. They call it the swoon theory. Well, we, we misunderstand the Romans' expertise on death. They were masters at prolonging death in torture, and they knew quite well when someone was dead, as did the Jews. And so, in summarizing Paul's conflict with the Jewish people, even the Romans are saying, Jesus was dead. Chapter 26 and verse 8, Paul says, Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? That's the beginning place. Jesus was dead. Chapter 26, verse 23, citing what the Old Testament law and prophets and Moses had said, that the Christ must suffer, code word for die, we'll see that in a moment, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Jesus died. He was condemned. He was executed. But he was innocent. He was righteous. He was sinless. Peter said it this way, the righteous suffered for the unrighteous. This death is significant to the gospel story. A resurrection really doesn't matter much unless we go back and focus on this death. And you remember in the Old Testament, a spotless animal was sacrificed in the place of the guilty sinner. The innocent sacrifice was punished for the sinner's guilt. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, that was ingrained in the practice of the Old Testament sacrificial system 
that the innocent sacrifice is punished for the sinner's guilt. And then in the New Testament, John the Baptist announces that Jesus is the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. The sinless Savior is sacrificed in the place of guilty sinners. And Jesus is punished for the sinner's guilt. This is what we call substitutionary atonement. Substitution, we understand, someone takes the place of. Atonement, you probably understand as well. The word simply means cover. And so by the substitution of someone else, we are covered. By the substitution of Christ's righteousness for my unrighteousness, we are covered in robes of righteousness and stand before God as though we were righteous. And in the substitution of my guilt for his innocence, Christ suffers the consequences of our sin, death. Pictured in the Old Testament sacrifices a million times over, fulfilled in a sacrifice, Hebrews would say, once for all. Jesus' resurrection necessitates a study of his death. And in his death is the unfolding of the good news. Sinners need not die because of their sin. They can be right with that holy God we sang of. But it will only be by faith in Jesus. Every effort to be good enough Though many will boast in in great sincerity of those efforts to be good enough, every effort to be good enough is an insult to God who gave his son to provide the righteousness that we need. And this is why we can have compassion on those who think that heaven is earned by good works. It's not. The Bible says all our good works in unbelief, are are as filthy rags in God's sight. And so we consider the death of Christ in making the argument for the value of his resurrection. The death of Jesus, that's the logical implication of resurrection. Now consider this historical reality of the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. Now, Festus wasn't quite sure. 2519, he said, Paul asserts Jesus to be alive. Chapter 26 and verse 8, God raises the dead. Why are we surprised that he would raise his son from the dead? He promised in the Psalms he would not leave the Holy One to suffer corruption. 26, verse 15, Paul, recounting his conversion story, meets Jesus. The Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Jesus rose from the dead. Chapter 26, verse 23, the Old Testament scriptures told us Christ must suffer and he would be the first to rise from the dead. That's a common expression. Jesus is the first fruits from the dead. And then we stop and think, but wait a minute. We read in the Old Testament of people that were brought back from the dead. Elijah and Elisha working these miracles. 
The text isn't saying Jesus is the first one to raise from the dead. After all, even Jesus brought Lazarus back from the grave, healed another young girl who had died, and brought her back to life. So when the Bible says he's the first or the first fruits, the the implication there is for our benefit and our encouragement. It means he's that first harvest. He is now announcing that there will be a vast harvest to come. It's like if you plant your tomato in a pot out on your back porch, and that first red tomato that you pick off that plant is the first fruits. You're not thinking, there it is. The plant gave me my tomato, and now it's done. No, you have the full expectation that all through the hot months of summer, that thing's going to be churning out tomatoes. But you remember the first fruits. It's significant. There it is, a harvest. And the text reminds us here and elsewhere in the New Testament epistles that Christ in his resurrection was the first fruits, and all will be resurrected following this great victory over the grave. Jesus rose from the dead. I found myself wondering if there were any men left on this Jewish Sanhedrin that was so attacking Paul, if there were any of them left from 30 years before, when this very Sanhedrin conspired to pay off the Roman guards and to just say that the disciples came and stole the body. And they knew full well that Christ had risen. They knew full well of the eyewitnesses, Jesus appearing to individuals, to small groups, to his disciples, and to a crowd of 500, 1 Corinthians records for us. You wonder if some of them even laid eyes on the risen Christ. But in unbelief would not bow to him as Lord, as Savior. They knew Jesus had risen, and all through the book of Acts, we see them fighting to keep it quiet. In Acts 4 and 5, that, those great texts of the disciples saying, we must obey God rather than men, it's because they were telling them, stop saying Jesus rose. And they said, we can't help but speak of this. This, this is the turning point of all history. Jesus rose from the dead. We're coming up on the anniversary, we might say, of that event. We call it Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday. Of course, we're reminded every Sunday that it's the first day of the week. And with the dawning of the sun, we remember them coming in that early dawn to an empty tomb announced by angels. See for yourself, he's not here. He's risen, as he said. But once a year, we mark the actual historical event tied to that feast of Passover. And that event anchors the gospel. It, it, it tells us every week and every year that the righteous, crucified Jesus was buried, but he rose again. He is alive. And this is good news for us because we are that harvest that follows the first fruits. 
there will be a resurrection to come. And all who put their faith in Jesus will enjoy everlasting life with him. Paul, writing to the Thessalonian church, told them to comfort one another with words that Jesus is coming and even those who have died before us. And and many of you have loved ones, parents, grandparents, extended family, friends, former pastors. We know those who have died in the faith. And Paul told that church, comfort one another in the thought that in a shorter time than we can really feel in this present sorrow, Jesus is going to call them out of the grave and we are going to meet the Lord in the air and so we will ever be with the Lord. This is good news. This is what drove Paul on. Defense after defense, month after month, turning to year after year in prison. And what do people know of him? He's clinging to this hope of his Lord being alive. And we've come to understand that. How does this resurrection anchor the gospel? Number three, it tells us that God has a plan to save sinners. In Acts chapter 26 and verse 6, listen for the word that Paul uses over and over. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? My hope in the promise, my hope, this hope, that God raises the dead. This was Paul's heartbeat. Again, not to the neglect of repent and believe, You are sinners and God is holy and the only way to be in fellowship with him is to deal with this sin problem. And that only happens by faith in Jesus. He alone forgives sin. He alone gives you a righteousness not your own. Paul didn't neglect that, but what always rose to the surface was this great hope. We are not miserable people. We are burdened and we may groan from this day until that resurrection, but we are not without hope. So that even in our sorrowing, Paul says, it is tempered, it is mixed with rejoicing. Hope, hope, hope that God raises the dead. Later in chapter 26, verse 22 He gives us the whole story. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles." We all understand light shining in darkness, whether it be the dawning of a new day, the the light coming on that blinds us in the middle of the night, the flashlight shining down the hall or out the back door because of some bang in the middle of the night. 
We know the power of light, and our text capitalizes on that and says the whole Old Testament told us this was going to happen. There would be a once-for-all sacrifice. There would be a, a truly righteous king. There would be a perfect priest with a perfect sacrifice. It was all going to come to fulfillment in this one who would suffer, die, and rise again. And in his rising, he would announce triumphantly that the darkness has lost and light has won. And so when we face our tragedies as we've done this week, we pray as we prayed that the gospel light would shine in that darkness. It's powerful. And it changes lives still today. Paul is not the only one who was blinded by a light. His was maybe legitimately a light seen by others, some kind of noise or voice heard by others. Your experience was probably different in the sense that it may not have been visible light and audible voice. But in the same dramatic fashion, God arrested you on your path of rebellion. And the light that shines from the face of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4 tells us, pierced the darkness of your heart. And you knew he was Lord. And so we pray for those in unbelief still, some of them that you love dearly, some of them that you know casually. We long for them to have what Paul had and what we as believers have, a hope that there is more to the hurting in this life. But God has a plan. And that plan was laid out through all of Scripture and it culminates in the person of Christ. And so we give our attention to Jesus and his story of rescuing sinners. We give attention to the resurrection because it's essential to God's plan to save. He resurrected Jesus so that he could give us everlasting life. And because we see this plan of God to save sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we can say with Paul, number four, Christians are not crazy. Yes, we should laugh, because that does need explanation. <laughs> Christians are not crazy in one way that I'm addressing here, all right? You know your spouse better than we do, and we might agree with you if you want to say they're a little crazy sometimes. In our story, Paul just told that whole biblical account. All the law and the prophets tell the story of a suffering, dying, and resurrecting Savior, that sounds odd, right? That one rescuer would be cursed, and that was the great answer to everyone else not being cursed. And so Festus just kind of jumps in and says, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. It's an interesting blend, great learning out of your mind. It's as if he recognized that I see what you're saying and how this whole Jewish faith was leading up to this culmination, but it, this doesn't make sense. I, 
you're out of your mind. They thought he was crazy. We could read in 1 Corinthians 15 how Paul makes a comprehensive argument that if God doesn't raise the dead and Jesus hasn't been raised, then Festus is absolutely right. Christians are crazy. But he takes it a step further. He even says they, they would be a people to be pitied because, I mean, because they're clinging on to some cloud, some ridiculous notion. They would be pitied. Hedonistically speaking, because they're, they're living this committed life to, to nothing. They're wasting their years. They should be eating, drinking, and being merry, and instead they're, they're walking this line and saying they're pleasing someone and trying to live a holy life. That would be ridiculous. It would be crazy if Christ hasn't raised from the dead. But Paul goes on to argue in chapter 15, Christ is risen. And having been raised from the dead, Paul argues, that changes everything. Now he has verified, God has, by the resurrection of Jesus, everything Jesus taught, everything Jesus claimed, everything Jesus did, including his work on the cross, validated, sealed, approved in raising his son to life. The world may say it's crazy to believe in someone who rose from the dead, but we would probably gently ask them, since every other world religion worships someone who is dead, how that's any crazier. We have hope. And while we may not be able to convince people that Jesus is alive, we take Paul as our example, bubbling over with hope, longing that they would believe what he believed so that they could be like he was. And in a, almost a moment of brevity, he says, I wish that all were as I am. By that he means filled with and speaking to this hope, but not like I am in these chains. You can see him holding up his hands or feet and kind of a wink and a nod to Festus and Agrippa like, hey guys, help me out here. But his point is, I wish everyone was like me. Even if it does mean chains, that they would have the hope that there is something more to this life than the pain and heartache we experience. Christians aren't crazy. That craziness is called hope. And that's our final point. Christians have hope. We heard Paul say it again and again in Acts chapter 26. He's not speaking of a blind hope there in verses 6 and 7. But he says, I have hope in the promise made by God. This isn't, I wish upon a star or make a wish and blow out my candle. This is hope in a promise. It's why the Bible word for hope isn't quite what we think of as hope. Our kids hope they're going to get some lavish gift for their birthday. And they get, you know, replenish the underwear drawer or something. They, they might hope big, but it's not founded on anything. Hope in the Bible is not a a reckless kind of 
frivolous hope in some kind of crazy idea. Hope in the Bible has substance to it. It's based on something. It's more like saying I'm confident in. Because sometimes we would say hope is different than confidence. The Bible says they're the same. This hope is certain. It's in the promise. Christ the first fruits and all who believe as the harvest after him. This is hope. Hope that transcends this life and its pain. Hope that your sins will be forgiven. Hope that when you die, you stand before God, not in terror, but in confidence, robed in the righteousness of Christ. Hope that sin and death that we've seen again this week will be destroyed. It will be put to an end. It will bow to Jesus. He will be recognized as King of kings and Lord of lords. It's hope that those who have died before us will be raised. We have not said our final goodbye. Hope that we who have trusted in Jesus will enter into the joy of our Lord in his presence forever. The Bible calls it a new heaven and a new earth. A perfect place of perfect joy. This is the hope that only Christians have. And it's tied to the resurrection. Jesus is alive. In these coming weeks, I trust we'll be mindful of resurrection. It means something. We may be guilty at times of of summarizing the work of Christ as Jesus died for our sins. And again, that's biblical and it has its place. But this week, the focus builds on that. It acknowledges that he did suffer and die, the righteous for the unrighteous. But it forces us to bring the whole story together as the creeds do when we say that Apostles' Creed or Nicene Creed. It reminds us that Christ, the righteous one, died for sinners. He was buried, and yet he rose again. And that changes everything. So may this Resurrection Sunday and this season of resurrection remind us all that God has brought us from death to life through faith in Jesus. And that God will still shine his light into the darkness around us. Heavenly Father, may all who hear your word today believe that Jesus is risen. And may they believe that his atoning death is sufficient to save them and to forgive every sin to wash them clean, and to hand them those adoption papers that they belong to you, our Heavenly Father. May the joy of our salvation and the hope of the resurrection be part of the sufficient grace that sustains us for the week ahead. We rest in your providence, Lord for which we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.